This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. When there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mark market. Well, Christopher Joy, thanks very much for uh, for jumping on the call. I'm really excited about uh, this conversation. And to be honest, usually I, I get a guest on, and we start. You know, in your case, I go through your time at Geelong Grammar, University of Sydney, uh, time at Cambridge, advising you know, Prime Minister Rudd and, and Malcolm Turnbull, but to be honest, there's too many current issues I'm, I'm dying to, to pick your brain on. So I thought we'd jump right into Coolabar Capital Investments and, um, and start there. What is it? What's your guys' investment framework? And, and why did you set up a fund like that? Yeah, so Coolabar runs about $6.5 billion. Uh, we are an active fixed income manager. Um, we're really a trader. So we're looking for bond mispricings. Um, and to be honest, we run a rich range of strategies. So like if you just look at the last 12 months, I might just uh, show you a, a chart here. The black bars are our portfolio returns over the year to March and the red bars are some benchmarks. So <clears throat> we run cash enhanced funds, but we also run much more aggressive long short funds. Uh, the net of fees have done about 16.6% in the last year. Um, we do run a quantum mental process, which basically means <clears throat> we use a lot of quant research and a lot of fundamental research. Uh, and we're probably the most active trader of Aussie bonds, certainly in Australia, perhaps globally. So <clears throat> over the last uh, year, or certainly since um, January uh, 2020, we have traded, um, I think, yeah, I think right now about $38 billion of bonds since uh, the start of last year. So we're typically buying and selling 70 to 100 times a day, typically about $150 million a day. Uh, these are our since inception monthly buys versus sells. And... Um, just looking for mispricings. What we're not trying to do, Chris, is chase yield, which is quite common for uh, fixed income guys. So we're not looking for risk. We're not looking for uh, credit default risk or illiquidity risk <clears throat> or duration risk. Mm. We're just looking for bonds that are cheap. And a lot of our return comes from capital gain, not from yield. And you've got extensive use of quants, you mentioned. Just how many quants have you got working inside the business? Yeah, so we have 26 full-time staff spread between Sydney, London, and Melbourne. We have 10 quants, uh, four PhDs, two university medalists, and we have, within that team, uh, four software engineers as well. So quant is very, very important. And just to give you a visualisation of that again, we're revaluing every bond that we can trade globally. So these are the Australian dollar floating rate notes, ranked from cheap to expensive, using up to 30 to 40 different quant models, Australian fixed rate bonds, US financials, uh, US corporates, 
European financials and European corporates. And we basically want to get long the very cheap bonds here and short the expensive bonds here. And the models are typically very accurate. So this shows you the explanatory power. <clears throat> An incredible win rate, isn't it? You know, when you compare particularly to an equity investor. Well, I actually didn't actually show you the win rate, but if you want to see the win rate, yeah, it is, it is pretty impressive. So these are all of our bond sales since inception from 2012. And this is the return axis and this is the time axis. And you're actually looking there at 20,400 bond sales. And the value of those bond sales is 22.8 billion. <clears throat> and we're getting, uh, we're making, the red dotted line is the loser line. So we're making money about 98.5% of the time. And we're getting capital gains almost 89% of the time. And every black dot here is a bond sale. So on that particular security, we made 17.49%. But it is a consistent process, uh, but very quantitative, as you mentioned. And so you could be trading anything. You're trading data sets, essentially. It could be commodities. You know, Jim Simons is a, is a quant-based, uh, the, the most successful hedge fund manager ever, really, uh, trading equities. What, what made you choose bonds as the instrument to express your, your mathematical view? Yeah, so that's a really good question. The unlisted bond market is very inefficient, which means there are... <clears throat> regularly valuation errors. So um, the reason it's inefficient is very dark and opaque. So we've traded uh, since 2020. I can actually show you the data again, just the updated data. But you just trade government bonds, don't you? You don't trade corporate no, we bonds? Trade, we trade uh, corporate bonds, bank okay. bonds and government bonds. Yeah. And if we look at our trading volume since the start of last year, We've sold about 17 billion and we've bought about uh, 21 billion. So we've traded almost 40 billion. Um, and the reason we chose those markets is, so if you look at these bond sales here, <clears throat> or these bond trades, or actually, no, let's focus on the sales. So we've sold 17 billion since the start of last year. And the prices of those trades are not disclosed anywhere. So it's very different to equities, where every time you can trade, everyone sees those trades. The other main driver of the inefficiency is there are very few active bond fund managers. So normally the uh, <clears throat> investors in this space are buy and hold and active fixed income fund will often have hold, <clears throat> you know, 500 to 2000 securities and um, they're not really revaluing those securities regularly. Uh, and the fees are very low. They're basically paid passive fees. No performance fees, <clears throat> typically 20, 30, 40, 50 bips in management uh, <clears throat> fees. And that means that investors not being really paid to find those mispricings. Very different to equities where it's transparent, you got the smartest guys in the world, like Renaissance, who you mentioned, trading equities, <clears throat> looking to find those mispricings. So my market is big, it's very liquid, it's very dark, and it's very passive. So you can see the clear advantage, almost a retail investor couldn't play in, in the space you're playing in. 
when you think more broadly about potential edges that retail investors can get that institutional investors find hard across different asset classes to bonds, what are some of the advantages small investors have when you compare it to institutional investors and you know, having to live up to a mandate or the various other restrictions they've got? I think that in efficient asset classes, particularly um, equities, is super efficient, uh, especially global equities. Um, Even micro caps? No, I think in small caps, they're much more inefficient. Yeah. We just take large cap global equities. Yeah. Very efficient. <clears throat> Currencies, super efficient. Uh, interest rates, specifically interest rate derivatives, very efficient. In those markets, to be honest, going passive probably makes sense. And a retail guy in a passive ETF uh, you know, in the last year, for example, would have killed Magellan. Um, very hard for, unless you're Jim Simons with 150 PhDs, yeah. very hard for Insta guys to win. Um, I think so where do the inefficiency, what, what markets do you look at outside of the, the bond markets you mentioned <clears throat> where, you, where you see inefficiencies? Okay, I mean, two obvious ones that spring to mind are property. I mean, I think the man on the street is as sophisticated probably in property resi as anyone. So I think resi property is a huge opportunity for mums and dads. Crypto is very inefficient. I don't know anything about crypto, so don't ask me about it, but... but the stories I hear suggest it's quite inefficient. Um, and then, I mean, it sounds simplistic, but, you know, small business. Uh, I think, you know, your own personal business, you probably have a lot of edging. Yeah. Particularly if you're making money. And so getting back onto bonds, I mean, you're a bond trader, but maybe with more of a bond investing lens and, and longer term bond investing. The last time we had this much debt in the global system was post-World War II and we had negative real rates, real rates for most of the next 35 years and bond investors got a haircut. Do you see the same outcome for people that hold bonds over the longer term for the next 20 or 30 year time frame? I think over a 20 to 30 year time frame, I think there are definitely very large risks in terms of inflation and interest rates if you hold to maturity in bonds. Yeah. Very large risks. Um, having said that, at some point, those long rates will rise and reset as they've done relatively recently. And you know, bonds may offer a compounding rate of return that seems appealing. But I personally, in the portfolios we run, we don't like taking interest rate risk. Yeah. So our interest rate risk is is actually non-existent. We run zero-year duration portfolios, mostly. Um, so I think you know, in the short term, <clears throat> inflation risks are pretty modest over the next one to two years. But over a 5, 10, 15-year time frame, there are some huge risks, particularly if we get a world war or a major power war between China and the US. Uh, so I'm not an advocate of passive hold to maturity bond investing uh, right now. What I will say, and I, I guess that jives with the inefficiency point, I think being active, you can definitely outperform 
in, in bonds? You know, I think the, the framework, just about anyone investing currently has lived under regards to inflation is that uh, the economy starts to overheat, inflation comes, you know, if we work off the US because it's a relative game and everything sort of flows off what the, the Fed does, inflation comes, Fed raises interest rates to cool things down. And that's the, sort of the way the world has worked. We, no one has lived in a world, oh, sorry, has invested really in a world where there's yield curve control and the answer to rising inflation is a loosening of um, the credit environment. Do you think that's something we're going to see? Or if we do get high inflation, how will a government like the US be able to fund, fund itself with, in a rising interest rate environment? So a couple of points. Just to backtrack uh, on the earlier question, one point I was going to make was a lot of people say that bonds are negatively correlated to equities, especially uh, government bonds. That's true in deflationary environments. The correlation tends to go positive <clears throat> in inflationary environments. So the idea of bonds as a hedge for equities, I think that's a, a more rubbery proposition. <clears throat> uh, if we have a period where we have inflation, interest rates tra trend higher, <clears throat> and you get a negative shock to bonds and equities. I think that one real question is, I think this is what you're saying, how do governments service <clears throat> all this debt if rates start rising? Yes. Uh, if, if we do actually see a positive inflation shock. I think the only answer is money printing. Yeah. What that means is the central banks <clears throat> do more and more QE and they buy the bonds. And by doing so, they keep yields low. But we've usually seen that just in a deflationary cycle, haven't we? We've never, you know, other than World War II, we've never really seen that occurring in an inflationary cycle. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that is fair. And at some point, if inflation rises to very high levels, you get this existential crisis, <clears throat> you get this tension between the central bank wanting to restore low inflation mm. and the credibility and solvency of the sovereign. That is, can you know, Australia the US actually service their debt burdens at much higher interest rate levels? So I think um, you know, our view is that in the short term, the long-term rates can't rise much above what we call the neutral nominal cash rate. So the RBA thinks that <clears throat> its neutral cash rate is probably somewhere between one and a half and two and a half percent. Currently, 10-year yields around 1.7. 1.8%. And so once we get around the 2% 10-year government bond yield, all that means is the market's pricing in a normalisation of cash rates. And it would seem to us that there's a limit to how far long rates can go in the next year or two. Mm. Probably around, you know, the ceiling's probably around uh, two and a half to 3%. In Australia? And the US. Yeah, for the 10-year. Yeah. yeah. We saw in the US in 2018. 
the Fed lifted its cash rate to 2.25 and then markets blew up. Yeah. So the 10-year yield did go to 3.2 uh, in 2018 in the US. Uh, and that's certainly up, up, an upper bound, I think, in the short term. But our view has been since February that 10-year yields would, would range trade. They'd move sideways. Yeah. And that's what we've seen. Um, <clears throat> so I think that a lot of the short-term damage has been done in terms of rates and those 10-year yields, as in they've already risen yeah. quite, quite strikingly. But I think in the medium term, there is a, a world in which they can rise a lot more, particularly if we get a decoupling of inflation expectations. The causality, Chris, though, <clears throat> is from jobs to wages to inflation. And currently, wages are running at 1.4%. To get consistent <clears throat> consumer price inflation, we need wages back at 3 to 4%. So we're a long way from that. See, I reckon this is the debate I find really interesting about inflation and deflation is it means different things to different people. And, you know, you've mentioned CPI and that's obviously the measure um, that the RBA uses that they talk about a lot. And, and they, they seem to be really focused on wage inflation as, as makes sense when you look at the difference between capital and labour, which is at historically high terms and, and the cause for significant problems in society if that keeps going can it are people oversimplifying it when they expect everything to be inflating or everything to be deflating can we live in a world where you've got deflation particularly in anything that technology touches i mean like, there's no way we're going to see an increase in the price i paid for broker fees for instance because tech technology has now deflated that industry but in finite things like land which i know aren't part of the cpi we We've seen a lot of inflation or price increases and other things that are scarce and needed and wanted. We're seeing considerable inflation. Is it, is it reasonable to expect we can live in a world that's experiencing both high inflation and significant deflation, depending on which area you're talking about? Well, I think we've been in that world to some extent since 2008. But has the deflation not shown up in the things text touched because of central bank printing like are we not seeing the price declines that we should be seeing because of all the qe that's occurred and with things that aren't being touched by technology we are seeing that price appreciation yeah so i think that since 2008 we've had very weak consumer price inflation uh but we haven't had outright deflation but within that you're right the the uh, deflationary influence of technology has been offset against other factors but i think your key point is we've seen huge asset price inflation. Mm. And just because house prices aren't in CPI doesn't mean that that's not uh, an important measure of inflation. And for people who buy homes, which is 66% of households, you know, that's, that's part of their cost of living. Mm. And so I think... There's no doubt we've had massive inflation in asset prices. We've had some mitigating deflation in technology. I think the question is, if central banks can drive unemployment 
unemployment rates down to three to four percent, which is their goal. And if they can lift wages growth to four percent, which is another goal, will we get synchronous <clears throat> CPI inflation and asset price inflation? Mm. And at that point, will we get a big rise in long uh, rates? So long-term cash rates, and will that be a problem for markets? We saw in 2018, when the 10-year yield went to 3.2%, equities plummeted. So <clears throat> there's a lot of inherent circularity here. Our argument for 10 years has been, you'll get uh, like periods of rising inflation, yields rising, and then markets reacting very negatively, mm. some deflation, and then more QE. And the QE continues <clears throat> until you get a major inflationary shock where you have this Gordian knot, where effectively you have <clears throat> a repeat of what we saw in the 1970s and 80s, where central banks have to consider, do we increase rates to a level where we'd get a very, very severe recession in order to um, re-anchor inflation expectations. So at this point, inflation expectations look very anchored. Central banks appear credible. And inflation expectations <clears throat> are really no different to where they've been in the past. But if everyone starts worrying about inflation, and you've seen some signs of this, potentially expectations rise, and then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think that potentially, you know, Bitcoin is a harbinger of this. People are worried about fiat currencies as a store of wealth. And so they're starting to pivot into land, Bitcoin, gold, and other um, asset classes. And if that continues, we could be in a new regime that we haven't seen for a very, very long time. It's also the idea of bonds as a reserve asset for central banks seem fundamentally flawed because there's a limit to how much they can appreciate. I mean, we're not going to see minus 20% yields on bonds, um, certainly not while you've still got cash. Um, you know, you know, uh, is there a fundamental issue when you've got so much debt and the other side of the ledger is an asset which is limited in the amount, the amount it can appreciate? Uh, what, what, what are you concerned about in terms of a fundamental issue? Well, if you've got all this government debt and let's say you had gold as the major asset on that balance sheet and gold went through the roof, the debt pile would cease to be as big an issue because you've got an asset that's gone up in value so much. If the asset on the other side of that debt is a government, is a government bond that can't depreciate infinitely, really, unless you believe rates can go to minus 30% or, or higher, sure. which I can't yeah. see happening, um, that debt pile feels even more problematic than it would if the other side of ledger was gold or a Bitcoin that we've seen has the ability to appreciate significantly in a short amount of time. Yeah, so I think that this comes to the question sometimes people ask about the solvency of central banks. Yeah. Um, and I guess the only limit on the solvency of the central bank is any constraints on its ability to print more money. So I don't think it really becomes a concern. 
I mean, certainly the balance sheet integrity and the credit worthiness of central banks is deteriorating, which is kind of what you were saying. But it only becomes an issue if the central bank can't fund itself. And because it has a monopoly on printing money, uh, there's no limit on how much it can fund itself. Uh, I think the issue for the central bank is when currency loses its credibility. Yeah. Uh, and then you get hyperinflation. Which is what you see in Venezuela or the Argentina or countries yeah. like that. It's not a US problem or an and Australia. And the counter-argument would be, you know, my good mate Charlie Jamison, who you know and who I respect a great deal, Charlie might say, well, with high debt burdens uh, and with technology, you know, there's, there's not really um, much room <clears throat> for interest rates to climb materially. I think that that is true in the short to medium term. But if you have a decoupling of expectations and if you have a hyperinflationary environment, which you can absolutely have with high debt burdens, and in a way, governments have an incentive to foster inflation, to effectively inflate their way Mm. out of the fixed nominal value of those debts, then I think that becomes a problem. Then you potentially get a Volcker moment where the central bank may have to very aggressively increase interest rates to actually defend its own credibility. And so you were vocal in your support of QE with the RBA, uh, particularly recently, but, but several times before. Um, was that more because we live in a relative world where if they didn't commit to it, our currency was going to appreciate too much and make wage growth really challenging? Or was it, did it more speak to a, a supportive view of QE full stop? Well, I've been very critical of QE as cannibalising capitalism uh, for a decade. So I've argued that you know, QE involves central banks effectively junking markets and trying to set prices themselves. Mm. This is all, you know, QE is really focused on the central bank setting bond prices and equity prices, not you or I, Chris. Mm. And capitalism is all about market setting prices. And when a business has done badly, punishing that business. You know, Orko and Babcock and Brown, pre-GFC or during the GFC. Which we do better in Australia, don't we? Like Virgin went under for all intents and purposes. The equity holders lost their shirts and the debt holders got control of the business. Does that sort of separate us in the US in how we've handled these crises recently? Yeah, I think that's a very astute point. The RBA has been arguably the most reluctant central bank in the world to do QE. And it only really started proper QE in November uh, last year. Um, Precisely because it's worried about the distorting influences uh, of QE. You know, you often hear the equity guys say, yes, PE multiples are at all-time highs, but if you look at shares relative to bond yields, they look very cheap because mm. it's so low. Um, so I think that QE is highly insidious it makes economies very inefficient. 
because effectively it prevents markets from allocating capital uh, correctly. And it creates waves of zombie companies. Mm. Uh, we actually track the share of zombies on the ASX over time. And it's risen to about 15% of all firms. And a zombie is defined as a company that um, basically doesn't have enough earnings to cover one year worth of interest repayments. And uh, so, yeah, I think QE is a big problem. When you have nation states disintermediating markets and throwing out the mechanism <clears throat> that has delivered so much incredible prosperity since the Second World War, that is to say, capitalism. Uh, you know, the consequences for growth are very negative in the long term. However, if the RBA <clears throat> hadn't done QE in November last year and effectively matched uh, or tried to match what the rest of the world was doing, the Aussie dollar would have risen, toward, risen towards parity and Australians would have been punished. So it had no choice um, but to try and neutralise the impact of low rates around the world. So the US cutting rates and buying bonds and the ECB doing the same and the Bank of Japan uh, <clears throat> and the Bank of England makes Australian interest rates look very high uh, by global standards. Even after QE today, Aussie rates are still the highest rates in the world. And that puts <clears throat> huge upward pressure on our currency because people want to buy Aussie government bonds because they're still AAA rated. And yet the yields on our bonds are as high, if not higher, than other lesser rated nations around the rest of the world. So we actually track this live. I can show you the screenshot of this right now. So these are, these are yields. This is the maturity and this is the yield uh, from different countries around the world. <clears throat> so we look at a, a Japanese investor. These are Victorian government bonds, New South Wales government bonds, Aussie bonds and Italian bonds. So right now, for a yen hedge investor, mm. they get more yield on a AAA rated Aussie government bond than a triple B rated Italian bond or a double A rated US bond or a double A rated French bond or a UK bond or a German bond. And we can do the same thing in euros. And so when you, you talk about all the QE that's gone on in the system and you see how low yields are currently and how much currency has been debased, are asset prices like Australian housing or shares, are asset prices going up or is the value of the denominator, e.g. the AUD or the USD, used to measure those assets going down? For Aussie dollar investors, it's very clear that house prices are rising. Um, our currency is appreciated since March last year, where it rose from 55 cents 
to it's as appreciated against the USD though. It's crashed against Bitcoin. Sure. So what, like, what, what's like, if in fifty years' time, I know you're not. I guess, I guess for an Aussie dollar investor, as in for somebody who earns wages in Aussie dollars, housing is very clearly appreciated. It's a, yeah, it's appreciated in Aussie dollar terms, and it's appreciated in USD terms. But is that a sign that the value has gone up, or just the fact that those underlying fiat currencies are all being debased? Um, and I think that the way we look at it is. What's the impact of QE on yields? And how does that change in yield affect the purchasing power in the local currency? So in the US, most housing investors have 30-year fixed rate mortgages. And QE's very clearly crushed 30-year yields. And US house prices are up 11% over the last year. Uh, In Australia, The main driver of house prices has been the RBA's cash rate. When the RBA buys five and 10 year bonds, the fall in those yields doesn't really impact Aussie house prices directly because we mostly have variable rate loans. In my sort of layman view, let's say there's a hypothetical country and its entire monetary base is $100, right? And the value of your property versus that monetary base is $2, right? And then they commit to QE and increase their monetary base by 50%. And now you've got $150 as the entire monetary base. In my layman's view, your house that was worth 2% of the monetary base should still be worth 2% of the monetary base, e.g. it's gone up 50% in nominal value. Is that a realistic framework to view the world? Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a very, very good question. We've actually... Uh, published a paper on this on our website, pullbycapital.com, looking at how changes in the money supply impact decisioning. But I think that there are certain circumstances where that framework is true. Um, And uh, there are other circumstances where it's not. It's quite complicated. I guess my argument would be that the main transmission mechanism for, so we forecast house prices. Yeah. And we model and very well too, haven't you? We've got it, you know, I think pretty accurately since before the GFC. Um, I'd like to think we're the most accurate mainstream analyst over that period. But we model house prices and we try to understand all the influences on prices. So they include population growth, immigration, new building supply and construction and interest rates. And what we find when we model house prices over time is that by far the biggest driver of Aussie house price growth has been mortgage rates. Mm -hmm. And we've seen uh, a one to 2% reduction in mortgage rates over uh, the last couple of years, since mid 2019. And in our models, that implies house prices need to increase <clears throat> by about 20 to 30% uh, from pre-COVID levels. So, And over what time frame are you forecasting that to occur? So we, we think house prices need to rise 20 to 30% from basically April, April 2020 levels. 
And we think that'll happen over the next few years. We had penciled in 10 to 15% <clears throat> growth this year. And thus far, we're definitely tracking at the upper end of that forecast range. But I, th I think certainly over the next two to three years, we should get 20 to 30% growth. But in our models, that's been clearly driven by a massive expansion in purchasing power, which has in turn been fueled by a very large reduction in mortgage rates. Now, I'm, I'm conscious of time, so I, uh, I'll zip through to the last topic I really wanted to explore, you, which was an article you wrote a couple of days ago in the Fin Review, which was your view or the view of, of respected uh, political advisors and military advisors that you deal with, that the likelihood of a hot war between the US and China was now greater than um, than fifty percent. Um, maybe talk us through the the helicopter view of, of, of that thinking. Yeah, so we've been studying this risk for over a decade. I interviewed the head of the CIA, NSA in the US, ASIO here in Australia, ASD here in Australia, uh, and we've been talking about the the probabilities of conflicts and publicly over that period. Um, we have six geopolitical experts on our payroll who consult to us. Uh, these are basically the best China and US geopolitical minds in the world. And we gave a confidential webinar to our clients in May last year and basically said we thought the probabilities had risen to between 25 and 50%. I was at 50. Our advisors were closer to 25 they are now saying the probabilities <clears throat> are around 50, if not higher, today. And that encompasses a small-scale, <clears throat> low-intensity conflict all the way through to major power conflict. So we're very exercised by that. We think it's a big deal for portfolios. And is Taiwan it clearly seems like it's the major hotspot uh, regarding that potential conflict, are there other significant hotspots or is the main focus Taiwan and the, the semi-industry that they effectively dominate? So we think that a few things. Firstly, if we, we think China will try and unify with Taiwan. Uh, and we think China will have to use force. We think that's highly likely. And we think the US uh, will very likely go to war with China in some capacity to defend Taiwan. If they don't defend Taiwan, the value of the US alliance system really collapses. And is that around the semiconductor industry or is there other things at play that Taiwan's really important for economically? Actually, it has nothing to do with semis. It's all about what is the value of having an alliance with the US? What is the value of the US as effectively your protector in chief? Once China... If China takes Taiwan, not only does it move <clears throat> beyond the first island chain, uh, it fundamentally threatens now Japan. And if the US can't defend Taiwan, the question will be asked, can they defend Japan and Australia? Japan can go nuclear <clears throat> within two to three months. So if that happened, they would go nuclear. So suddenly you're dealing with a nuclear and emboldened 
Japan. So it's really about the integrity of the Five Eyes and Western alliance system, and also about the ability of the Chinese <clears throat> to break past the first island chain uh, and project power. If China takes Taiwan, it would then look at the Senkaku Islands, which <clears throat> the Japanese claim. It would look at controlling the South China Sea. So that's a key flashpoint. China has <clears throat> major territorial disputes with seven nations in the South China Sea. And frankly, probably the most valuable strategic asset in the Indo-Pacific would be Australia. So you know, Australia would be arguably a high priority in terms of controlling Australia, um, <clears throat> our access to trade and our key resources. And so if that were to happen, investors have a lot more on their mind and making a quid, but where do you hide as an investor if, if that world starts to look like it's a higher probability than it is today? Also, make no mistake that even just in a conflict over Taiwan, you know, facilities like Pine Gap and uh, listening stations in Western and Northern Australia uh, are essential parts of the US war fighting machine. So, you know, if there was a serious war over Taiwan, and most serious people think that's a serious risk, the Chinese would have to look at neutralizing those uh, assets. So it's entirely possible that we get ballistic missiles fired from Chinese nuclear submarines at key Australian targets, but also key targets in Guam, uh, in uh, Japan. I mean, there's just no doubt that if China tries to unify Taiwan through force, they're notwithstanding some you know, dissenting views on this subject, all the expert opinion has very high conviction <clears throat> that the US, Japan, the UK, uh, and Australia would all be at war with China. Now, where do you go? I mean, there's, you can go short. So we run long short strategies. So there are tons of opportunities on the short side. Uh, <clears throat> and there are opportunities to actually generate a lot of alpha, I think, on the short side, particularly if you have early access to intelligence on this issue. Um, and then you'd be looking at countries that are insulated from these risks. So you know, some might say Switzerland, others might say New Zealand, uh, given New Zealand uh, is unlikely, I think, to get involved. They're too commercially compromised by their trade relations <clears throat> with our North Asian friend. And so there are hedges out there. I think Bitcoin is an interesting one. I don't have a view on whether it's positive or negative, but certainly it's not hard to imagine it could be positive. The idea that China recently okayed their citizens to or encouraged their citizens to buy Bitcoin and also start buying gold, I thought was really interesting and counterintuitive to how they've generally viewed trying to con control the capital that their citizens have. Did you feel that was, you know, if you do go to war, getting as much gold inside your, your boundary 
as possible would seem to, to make sense. Did you view that as important or just another tidbit? No, I think that's a, a really interesting observation. And, you know, there are other related considerations. So it's not inconceivable that the US could immediately write off all of the US treasuries held by Chinese investors, which is their single biggest uh, you know, reserve exposure. So that's interesting. If, they just, if the US walks away from uh, Chinese-owned uh, liabilities, and I have no doubt that the Chinese are actively diversifying their exposures away from the US. Mm. It wouldn't surprise if the Chinese would be the biggest sovereign buyers of Bitcoin. Who knows? Um, they're the, they're the biggest, they're the biggest miner of Bitcoin currently. The country, yeah. So, um, I, you know, there, there's definitely evidence to suggest that sovereign wealth funds are buying Bitcoin, and that seems like a sensible diversification strategy. I, again, I, I preface, I, I know absolutely nothing about Bitcoin. I don't own Bitcoin, but we 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 certainly have very clear plans in our portfolios, and how we one hedge and two uh, generate alpha out of global conflict risk. Well, that's a, um, a, a pretty serious point to stop it, but a, a, as good a point as any as a, um, as a small stonk investor, it's certainly, <laughs> I certainly love being able to sit down with you and, and get a, a feel for the, the big picture stuff you're looking at and really appreciate you giving us so much time. And thank you, Chris, for the opportunity. I love uh, the uh, podcast and um, love getting your erudite questions. It is a real pleasure. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, mate. This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.